Hello and welcome. My name is Juanita Headley. I am a New York attorney and the founder and CEO of Changing Cases. You are listening to a set of podcasts, a series dealing with the issues of human trafficking, child abuse, and of course, can you keep a secret? Keep a secret. Knowing how to respond to the question Over the following weeks and months, I'm going to take a look at some hard-hitting topics with a view to educate, empower, and inspire you to change the way that you think, act, and respond to better safeguard the children in your world. Stay tuned until the end of this show, where I'll be sharing not only how you can get a copy of my new book, but I'll also inform you of some upcoming live Zoom trainings and how you can contact me to have your questions featured in a future episode of this show. So we can talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah. So we can talk about it. Talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's talk with Matt Friedman, an international human trafficking expert with more than 30 years experience. He is CEO of the Mekong Club an organization of Hong Kong's leading businesses that have joined forces to help end all forms of modern slavery. How did you get involved in addressing modern slavery? My first exposure to this issue was about 30 years ago. I was living and working in Nepal. I was a public health officer for USAID. And my job was basically to translate resources into healthier people. At that time, we were finding girls, say, 12, 13, 14 years old who were HIV positive. We couldn't understand what was going on because that particular country is uh, very conservative. So we went to go and interview them, and we pretty much heard the same story over and over again. It went something like this. Trafficker, guy around 20 years old, would go into a village, flash a bunch of money around. He'd say he's looking for a wife. He'd find a girl. Uh, go to the family, say, I want to, want to marry your daughter. Uh, they're thinking, wow, he's rich, he's handsome, he's going to take care of our daughter. After that, they actually go through a wedding ceremony. He says to the family, I'm going to take your daughter to Kathmandu, but instead he takes her to Mumbai, India, to the red light district. When they get there, he puts her in a room and he says, honey, stay here. I'll be back in a few minutes. He then goes off to the madam to get the $500 for having sold her to the brothel. He has the gold from the wedding and he hands the wedding pictures over to her, the, the madam. He then leaves to go to Nepal to do this again and again, maybe 40, 50 times in a year. After that, the madam goes into the room where the girl is and says, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me. and You're going to be with 15 guys a day, every day, because I say so. You can imagine her shock. No, 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 no. I, you know, my husband loves me. Well, that's what happens. Many of these girls, when they hear this, they say, I will kill myself before I do those shameful things. The madam then takes out the photo of the wedding and says, is this your mom, your dad, your brother? If you hurt yourself, we'll hurt them. Uh, in order to make her into a prostitute, it's quite simple. You bring in a couple of professional rapists and over a two day period of time, they'll take this girl, rape her 30 times until she eventually just lays back and accepts whatever happens to her. So I was hearing these stories over and over again but I didn't understand the evil of it until I actually went to those brothels. I was invited by the Indian government to do public health checks. 
uh, I had a police officer with me, went to one of the brothels, and there was an 11-year-old trafficking victim. She saw this Caucasian guy, saw an opportunity, literally ran up, wrapped herself around me and said, save me, save me. They're doing terrible things to me. I looked down at this child who was hysterically crying, turned to the police officer and said, we need to get her out of here. He said, we can't do that. So what are you talking about? You're a cop. He says, well, if we try to leave with her, we'll both be killed. To make a long story short, we left. We came back with a lot more police, but of course she was gone. Now I tell that story because I wasn't one of those 15 year olds that say when I grow up, I wanna be an activist. In fact, I did everything I could not to be but an activist, but every once in a while we get tested in life. That was my big test. It put me over the line to a point where I said to myself, listen, I can't turn my back on this. I'm gonna to surrender to the fact that now that I know that this exists, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. And 30 years later, here I am talking to you. I think that's amazing. And I know that you set up the Mekong Club. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what it does? Okay, so most uh, organizations are NGOs and they work kind of with the public sector. The Mekong Club is an organization that works with the private sector to help them to understand the issue of human trafficking and what they need to do in order to address it. So it's made up of private sector organizations that come together on a quarterly basis to meet, to discuss, debate, and then identify what needs to be done. We're broken into four categories. We work with the banks because banks need to understand human trafficking because the profits generated from modern slavery are $150 billion. If any of that money gets into a legitimate bank, it's money laundering, and so they have to address it. We work with the manufacturers because they have supply chains. And sometimes deep within their supply chain, they have a sweatshop situation. So they need to understand that so they can prevent that from happening. We work with the hotels because there's forced prostitution that they have to be concerned with. And also the retailers because they're often sued for buying, let's say, seafood from Thailand that could be tainted by modern slavery. So we work with this community, help them to understand what they need to do in order to address the problem and then give them the tools and the means to be able to uh, go out there and uh, find these things and fix them. How responsive has the private sector been in addressing the problem? Um, I think initially there was some resistance, uh, partly because they didn't see the need to do this. But over the last eight years, a lot of things have changed. First, there is legislation, the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, the UK Modern Slavery Act, the Australian Act, that basically says if you're a big company, you have to basically put on your website what you're doing to address modern slavery if you're working in any of those locations. If you're not doing anything at all and you say that, you're in compliance, but you have to say something. There are lawsuits against chocolate companies and retailers and even hotels and this creates the potential for reputational risk. We're seeing a significant increase in media coverage because people wanna know about this particular topic. In ESG, which is the metric for looking at private sector companies to see if they're doing good, now uh, there is an insistence that the S, which is social, includes modern slavery as part of it. And so basically we're seeing that the private sector recognizes that they need to focus on this, and many of the companies, once they get into it, once they're aware of it, begin to say, wow, we, if we play our role right, we can not only protect our business, but make the world a better place. So they are beginning to step up. 
How prevalent is modern slavery globally and in Asia? Uh, there's uh, over 40 million people in modern slavery around the world. Out of that, 25 million are in what I what's described as forced labor, and 16 a million of them are associated with supply chains. Each year, 9.2 million people enter modern slavery, which translates to about 25,200 people per day, or one slave every four seconds. So if we count to four, one, two, three, four, somewhere in the world, uh, somebody is entering into modern slavery. In fact, there are more slaves today than any other time in history. Where I live and work, there are about 66% of the people uh, are in modern slavery, basically for two reasons. Number one, Asia has lots of people. Uh, there's uh, China, 1.4 billion people, India, 1.3 billion. Then you have Pakistan and Bangladesh and Indonesia. All of those countries have amazing population sizes. In addition to that, the feudal systems that have existed for centuries that allow for exploitation to take place have never been completely dismantled. And as a result of that, that's why we have so many people in Asia in modern slavery situations. And where are you right now? I'm in Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, how would you say that you have had impact in the work you've done? What are some of the examples you can share about the amazing work you've been doing? Well, you know, uh, as I indicated, the banks are concerned about this issue because of money laundering. So we work with the banks to do what are called typologies, where they take the criminal activity over a period of steps and then identify which transactions are taking place. Once you've identified the transactions, you identify which of them could be considered to be what are called red flags or suspicious type transactions. And then once you have that, you can take that and apply it to big data. So let me give you an example. Let's say that there's a nail salon parlor here that has hours from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m. But we're finding transactions taking place at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, all around 100 US dollars. If you run on the, those indicators, you might find that there is a sex trafficking ring taking place or being used uh, in, in the evening hours. So this gives an example of how the banks uh, work. When it comes to the manufacturers, most manufacturers, let's say you're, you're a running shoe company, have what are called three tiers. The first tier is where you assemble the shoe. The second tier is where the rivets and the shoelaces and the, and the sole and the material comes from. And the third tier is basically the raw material. We're working with manufacturers to help them to go deeper into their supply chain so they can identify whether or not there are any patterns or issues or problems that take place. And so by, by training them to know what to look for, by giving them the tools and the means to be able to chart out or trace their supply chains, we're helping them to identify the issues. When it comes to hotels, hotels have the potential for sex trafficking to take place. What we do is we train the hotel people on what to look for. Like if, for example, there's a room that has a lot of men coming in and out of it, they don't want anyone to come in and clean it, they want a lot of towels, those are indications of possible modern slavery taking place. So at the end of the day, much of what we're really trying to do is to open up a new front in addressing modern slavery 
to bring the private sector in as a positive contributor uh, to be part of the response. Would you say that the private sector really cares about the topic or are they simply going through the motions? You know, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, when I work with companies, there's a certain percentage of them that come to us and say, we need to understand this issue. Can you train us? And so we give them the basic information. Then they look internally to see what systems and procedures they have in place, and they modify them and change them to figure out what they need to do. Then they start doing risk assessments where they're really tapping into their supply chains, their networks to identify what the vulnerability is. And then they start putting in place things that ensure that this remains sustainable. Along that journey, there's always a certain percentage of people within the private sector who for whatever reason have a heart for this issue. It really gets under their skin that this is happening. And so they go beyond just looking at it from the corporate sector. They actually uh, kind of step up and say, I want to volunteer, I want to contribute somehow, how do I get involved in helping others to be a part of the process? And so that leadership element is introduced. And we don't always know which, the, which people these will be, but it's like anything else. Uh, we don't really pick our causes, our causes pick us. I, that was certainly the case with me. I didn't decide that out of 10 causes, I wanted to do human trafficking. Something about my DNA kept bringing me back to this particular topic. And a lot of the corporate people who become leaders have the same kind of genetic background in the sense that they can't turn it off once it's been introduced to them. And so we do see that there are a certain number of private sector people that step up, get involved and go beyond what we would in a kind of expect of them. What more do you feel is needed to tackle this problem? Um, okay, so out of the 40 million people that are out there, uh, the world only helps about 100,000 a year. That's with all the NGOs, private sector, government, and United Nations people combined. That means that we're only helping 0.2% of the victims. Um, and this has been consistent for the last 10 or 12 years. What's needed is for there to be a united front where not only do we work with the United Nations, the NGOs and um, the governments, but the private sector steps up, the universities step up, the high schools step up, the faith-based groups step up and the general public steps up. So what we often try to do is to basically encourage anyone and everyone who's open to listening about modern slavery to understand that the responsibility belongs to all of us. When we're talking about a 15-year-old girl who's been commercially raped 7,000 times only to eventually get AIDS and will eventually die, that, belong, that responsibility belongs to all of us. And that's happening to 4.2 million women and girls around the world. You know, when it comes to a man, a man being tricked and deceived and forced onto a fishing boat, you're talking about a scenario whereby this is happening to thousands and thousands of people the fish that's on our plate comes from people who are in these circumstances. It's our responsibility to be a part of helping to address the issue. So I guess the answer to the question for me would be that we have to help people to understand the severity of this particular issue and to understand that we all have a role to play in helping to address this. What do you believe is an effective punishment for perpetrators of human trafficking? 
You know, I mean, it, 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 that's a really good question. Um, when it comes to the punishment, it really has to come down to the circumstances that the person is in, in terms of what they've done. Obviously, if a person tricks and deceives a girl into forced prostitution, it's a form of commercial rape. What we're talking about is rape uh, because the person is not consenting to be in that situation. If that uh, victim has been forced to do this a thousand or two thousand times, what is the punishment for that? To me, it has to be something quite severe because they've pretty much stolen that person's life. They've created issues that that will be with that individual for years and years to come. And so I, I, I think, it, you know, throw the book at that person. There is really a need for us to offer a deterrent by having people get arrested and convicted to send a message to the other criminals that if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Do you believe that naming and shaming the perpetrator of a crime is an effective deterrent? Well, I'll, I'll answer that from uh, two perspectives. Uh, from the corporate side, uh, we don't name and shame. We know that there are corporations that do bad things, but we had to make a choice, either name and shame corporations and have no access to corporations or to name and fame those organizations that are doing the right thing so that we could encourage people to not only buy their products, but to recognize that there are organizations that do good work. When it comes to the perpetrator, I think it's really important for them to be named and shamed and put in the paper. So once again, this can be a deterrent for other criminals from uh, who might be considering doing something similar. This helps to, to really kind of prevent people from walking that particular path. Do you believe that naming and shaming the perpetrator of a crime is an effective deterrent? Well, I'm going to answer that two ways. When it comes to the corporations, which I work with, I don't name and shame. We know that there are companies that do bad things out there, but we made a choice between if you go after companies and name and shame them, then you have no access to them. You can't talk to them. You can't communicate with them. So if you work with them in a positive, supportive way, and they know that you're not going to breach their trust, then basically uh, they will uh, help work with you in order to address uh, whatever issues that they have to uh, resolve. When it comes to the criminals, it's just the opposite. It's really important to get out to the world that this person did this terrible crime to act as a deterrent so that other people won't walk that same path. And so get the, getting these articles in the newspaper describing what happens is a is another way of raising awareness of this particular topic. Do you believe that such a thing as a child prostitute exists? And the next question I wanted to ask, do you believe that prostitution is a job and or the oldest profession in the book? Um, you know, the, the question of child prostitution comes up. Uh, no child should be in a situation where they're forced to have sex. It's an abomination. It's horrific. It's something that shouldn't exist. It's not a form of what would be described as sex work. Um, it goes against all the norms uh, of society. And so, uh, you know, there are children who are used in prostitution, but they should never de be described as being uh, a child prostitute. I, I think it's, it's once again, by definition, uh, a trafficking abuse. 
when it comes to uh, the debate of whether or not um, uh, there's basically two camps. One camp says if you eliminate prostitution, sex trafficking goes away. Uh, there's another group that says if you legalize it, uh, then you can regulate it and it will go away. Um, you know, I think both are right and both are wrong. If you try to uh, eliminate prostitution, it'll go underground, it'll increase the exploitation, it becomes a problem. And very few societies that endorse legalization and prostitution uh, that results in these regulations actually have regulations. And so even in locations where that exists, legalized prostitution, we still see sex trafficking taking place. So it doesn't really act as a deterrent. What can the average person do to help address the problem? I often say to people, um, if you could just do one thing a year to address modern slavery and 10 million people did one thing, that would add, add up to something quite big. And so the types of things that you can do are quite simple. You can go online, learn about the issue of modern slavery, human trafficking. And then once you have that information, go and tell your friends, your family, your coworkers about that particular issue. You can put things on social media. You can uh, volunteer. Um, you don't have to even go to the NGO office or to the site. Often you can do it online. And to give an example, my youngest volunteer was nine years old. This girl approached me and said that I want to do something. I saw you in a documentary. I said, you're nine years old. She said, so what? I said, you're nine years old. She said nine-year-olds were the new 16-year-olds. Anyways, I asked her what it is that she felt that she could do. She said that she did internet searches. She could find anything. I gave her that as an assignment. and She was better than my second year Yale Law student in finding things. The point is, we all have skills and abilities that we can apply to this. Another thing is to either donate money or fundraise for organizations because many organizations are suffering now because of COVID and they really need uh, resources. And so all of those things may seem small, but they really add up if they're done in large numbers. I want to ask final question. Do you feel the world can really tackle this problem? And if so, how? Um, I think that the world can tackle this problem. You know, a lot of people say, Matt, you keep saying we're only helping 0.2% of the victims. Aren't you pessimistic? Don't you think it's a hopeless cause? I don't because I feel like there has been momentum over the last couple of years in terms of people coming to understand this issue, waking up to it, wanting to get involved. And so for me, it really comes down to the numbers. As I mentioned, if we can get people to understand the issue and care about the issue and to step up and be a part of the process, that's gonna make a big difference. On the private sector side, we see more and more progress where the banks and the manufacturers and the retailers are really kind of stepping up, identifying whether or not the problem exists. And when they find it, they're addressing it and they're addressing it in a way that remains sustainable. So the private sector seems to be getting involved. When it comes to data collection and analysis, some very sophisticated organizations are coming forward and identifying ways to track the criminal behavior using data. Once it's analyzed, we have intelligence and that allows us to then figure out how we move forward um, in uh, kind of using uh, law enforcement and other responses to make a difference. So yes, I think we can, we can figure this out. Um, 
my way of remaining optimistic is to just say, we haven't found the silver bullet yet, but it's out there. That solution that's really gonna allow us to make a difference, to bring all of the various organizations and individuals together to really make a difference. Uh, let me just end with a story. Um, so years ago when I was doing this work in Nepal, I desperately wanted to do something to address modern slavery. So I decided that I was going to uh, write a book. As part of this project, I went from shelter to shelter to interview the girls. There was one girl named Gita. Every time I approached her, she said, no, 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 I don't wanna talk to you. But she sat and listened to all of the other interviews. As I was leaving, Gita comes running up and says, okay, you can have my story. I was thrilled. Gita sat on one side of the table, the rest of us sat on the other side of the table, and over a three-hour period, she told the worst story I'd ever heard of rape and torture and disease and everything else. Honestly, didn't know what to say to this girl. Finally, I turned to her and I said, wow, Gita, you must be so angry at the traffickers for the horrific things they did to you. She paused and she said, no, I'm angry at you and you and you. She pointed at us. She said, where were you? She said that every single day she woke up praying for somebody to come and help. Nobody came. She said she went to school till she was 12. She knew that everything around her was right out in the open. She said she wasn't angry at the traffickers. She said, they're just bad people being bad people. So there was, she was angry at the good people, at society for not caring enough to allow a 15-year-old girl to be commercially raped 7,000 times and then get AIDS. I tell this story because she called us all out. We all have a role to play in addressing this. In, with, in the absence of us stepping up and doing that, we're really not going to be able to achieve a goal of 20% and 50% and 100%. We need, we need a united front. Thank you. I'm amazed and I'm inspired. And that story really, it's very impactful because the fact of the matter is that there are so many of us who are doing absolutely nothing, maybe reading stories, becoming emotional, but not doing anything. And it's not always about providing needs financially, but there are other ways, volunteering your time like this nine-year-old. I'm really inspired. And I know that the people who are listening to the podcast will likewise be inspired. Would you be able to provide us with some information in case those who are listening in from around the world to this podcast would like to get in touch with you or even get a copy of your book? Yeah, I have one book called Be the Hero, Be the Change. Uh, it's online on Amazon. It basically describes how people can go from being ad apathetic to actually getting involved. It's uh, meant to be inspiring. Another book, Where Were You, uh, which is also online on Amazon. And that describes kind of my, uh, my uh, memoir in a sense, how I got into this, what happened to me, the, the ups and the downs and the successes and failures. And it's meant to help people to understand that what we're doing is very difficult. Um, you know, my uh, organization is called the Mekong Club. And if you want to uh, go online, uh, uh, you know, and see what it is that we're doing, by all means, go ahead and do that. And I'm happy to talk to individuals uh, to have my email uh, shared as well. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate the time. I'm certainly looking forward to having you on GEM FM, where we can go into a lot more detail and cover these topics. But once again, I really want to thank you. It's been an honor to have you. And I trust that the listening views to the podcast have also been inspired. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Keep a Secret? I trust that the information has been useful to you. I believe that we all need knowledge and education. And when we have a better understanding of topics such as abuse, it enables us to better safeguard the children in our world. 
for a better understanding of the topics being covered each week, then please reach out to me for a copy of my new book, Can You Keep a Secret? You can follow me, message or email me so that I can answer your questions in upcoming episodes. We can all learn from one another. And this is an educational series that I hope will impact and change not just your life, but also that of the people around you. You can find all my contact details on my website, changingcases.org. That's changingcases.org. Remember to share this podcast with friends and family members. There are victims and survivors in your world. You just don't know it. But if we can all be educated, then the world will be a safer place. Please tune in next week for another episode. Can you keep a secret? I want to trust you.